Happy Wednesday and welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Uh, one of the things I've been really wanting to do this August is is to take some time to look back on what happened a year ago, the anniversary of the fall of Afghanistan, and the fallout from that. And who better to talk to than Elliot Ackerman, who is a Marine combat vet who served nearly 10 years in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Elliot was a uh, lieutenant in the Battle of Fallujah. He was awarded the Silver Star, also received a Purple Heart after being wounded by a grenade, also the recipient of the Bronze Star in Afghanistan, where he served as a Marine Special Operations Captain. Elliot Ackerman was also a CIA tactical officer in Afghanistan, and after leaving the military, he's authored eight books, including his newest, The Fifth Act, America's End in Afghanistan. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today, Elliot. Thanks for having me on, Charlie. So let's talk about the anniversary. Um, It is right now August 24th, 2022. On August 15th of last year, the Taliban entered Kabul and took control of Afghanistan. You have described what it was like for you to watch the chaos and violence. So talk to me about that day and where you were and what your reaction was. Well, for me, I mean, so much of the the fall of of Kabul and the endgame in Afghanistan sort of had a strange uh, dissociative resonance. So on on August 15th, I remember exactly where I was as I was watching um, Kabul fall. And it was in my my mother-in-law's kitchen. Uh, of all places, as I saw those, you know, those images coming across the news, and obviously I'd been, you know, I'd been tracking military events in Afghanistan prior to that, so it wasn't, you know, uh, entirely surprising when when Kabul finally fell, as many other cities had fallen before it. Uh, but then, in the the next two weeks that followed, as the evacuation efforts uh, began in earnest in Afghanistan, I was actually with my with my family on a on a long planned. Uh, summer holiday in Italy of all places. So it was uh, my wife, me, my wife, and uh, our four children. Uh, and so, so psychically that seemed about as far away as a person could get from Afghanistan. But as the evacuations began, my entire network uh, lit up uh, with you know, people, people needing help, people scrambling to get out, um, either in, interpreters they'd worked with or interpreters I had worked with scrambling to get out their families. So I was, uh, you know, my experience with the, the the book, The Fifth Act, really tries to convey as sort of this um, this bifurcated reality as the war in Afghanistan ends. On one half, we know those of us who fought there sort of have our lives as we had been living them since the end of our wars and we since we left the wars. And then on the other side, you have the the war itself still going on and concluding in a very dramatic fashion. So you described in an NPR interview that you felt bound to America's Afghan allies. And so when the United States announced it was leaving, you know, those Afghans, many of whom you had worked with, were desperate to get out. And uh, you described how you were lying awake at night glued to your cell phone. So talk to me about who these allies were and what was happening. Well, you know, these are my, I mean, these are my war buddies. You know, these are the, these are the folks that I, I fought alongside. Um, you know, and these frankly are, are people who, you know, they might not hold, uh, blue American passports, but at least in my eyes, these are, you know, many of them are, are American heroes. I mean, these are people who have you know, not only fought for their own country, the Republic of Afghanistan, you know, but fought alongside us after September 11th, you know, with the objectives of our country, uh, the United States. So, 
you know, the war's been going on 20 years. So, you know, I'd say many of the Afghans, probably the majority of the ones that I fought alongside had since immigrated to the United States. So most mm-hmm. of the calls I was getting were were them desperately trying to get out either their family members who were threatened by the Taliban or, in, you know, in some cases, you know, younger siblings who were fighting with the Afghan uh, military. Um, so that was sort of my, my entry into the evacuation process. And then very quickly, I wound up subsumed in an effort to, you know, to get out numbers of Afghans who, uh, who I didn't know, sort of these, you know, these, you can imagine these lists, Hmm. and we had lists of hundreds of names of people we were trying to get out, and we were constantly sort of adding to these lists. So when we knew, you know, that we maybe had one flight that was coming in, a, a privately funded flight, we would fill that flight, but there were always more people trying to get on the flights than flights coming in. And so it was sort of this process of making you know 21st century schindler's list over and over again and um, and who gets on the list and who doesn't get on the list so i don't have any better way to describe it so you you actually write and this this struck me no american war has ever ended the way that afghanistan did in which those who were being abandoned could communicate directly with the outside world in in real time on whatsapp signal and other platforms the result was uh, what's been called a digital Dunkirk, uh, but also, you know, this strange collapse of distance. I think that made it feel so much more real that we were able to hear the voices that we actually knew. I mean, in the past, we have abandoned allies before, tragically, unfortunately, but uh, this this had a different feel to it. And so you were you became a key player in dealing with the allies who were trying to get out. I mean, you you knew somebody named Jack, the guy that runs the CIA program that pays uh, paramilitaries. So give me just a sense of of what your these days were like for you. You know, with this evacuation, you know, obviously, you know, there was a you know a a presence and an evacuation going on at the airport and around the airport that you know U.S. soldiers and Marines were conducting. You know, and they were. Really, their efforts were heroic trying to get people out in addition to you know, many of the State Department officials on the ground. But the overarching U.S. policy, you know, there really was no process. Um, and so there was really you know, bedlam at the airport. And, you know, I found myself involved with um, what I would just term a crowdsourced effort. And that consisted of U.S. military veterans. You know, I work as a journalist. So many journalists who have covered the war in Afghanistan for decades and uh and democracy, you know, activists and humanitarian activists as well. And so each one of us in this process were, as I said, because it was crowdsourced, where, you know, we were playing our, our position. So I was in touch, for instance, with uh, people on the ground in Kabul who were journalists who were organizing uh, minibuses to take people from pickup points around Kabul into the airport. Then uh, another colleague of mine who was also a journalist was the one helping raise the money for the private flights coming in. And um, and and helping curate these these manifests of people and keeping the whole thing organized. Another colleague who was a journalist who had written a book about the Taliban and had actually very good contacts within the Taliban was negotiating with the Taliban police checkpoints inside Kabul so that our convoys could get into the airport. You know the the value add I was able to bring was I you know I have uh, I have a, a whole network inside the military and intelligence just from my time serving there and by coincidence a number of my former colleagues and comrades were were on the ground in Kabul and so could just reach out to them and and, and coordinate with them and tell them when we were trying to get convoys of people inside but um, this was you know very much a, a team effort 
you know, and in, and in the fifth act, the book, you know, one of the reasons it's titled the fifth act is there are really five set piece evacuations that I write about in the book. And some were successful um, and others were not successful. And I want the reader to, to see why they didn't work, what stood in the way. In the book, your, your wife serves as a sort of a Greek chorus conscience for you. And when you're in Italy, she's asking you, so wh- why are you all having to do this? You know, why are the people who left the wars 10 years ago now being sucked in? What's the answer? So just be very blunt, because the you know, the administration had not planned for an evacuation of this scope. There, there was not a plan. So what filled the vacuum of that plan was an ad hoc effort to get as many people out as possible. Um, you know, the administration did not expect that Kabul would fall as quickly as it did. The expectation was that America, American troops would be able and personnel would be able to make an orderly withdrawal from Kabul. And then whatever the end game was between the Afghan government and the Taliban would occur at some point down the road when we wouldn't be responsible for it. But that didn't happen. Kabul fell on our watch. And as such, we were responsible for the evacuation. And because there was no plan, you know, you saw the the chaos that ensued at the airport. And I think, you know, everyone who was involved in these ad hoc efforts, you know, if there was any you know, State Department phone number or email address that we felt we could give to someone and say, if you call this person, if you send them an email, you will hear back and they will tell you how to get out. And, you know, we certainly would have done it. Um, but what was obvious was that the people who needed to get out had no had no recourse to get out aside from, frankly, the network they had in their cell phones. And that's one of the things that was so difficult to realize is that, you know, there were a number of people, yes, who successfully got out. But whether or not a person could could get out of Afghanistan with their family really had far less to do with the the nature of their service to the Afghan government or to the American government or whether they were deserving. It really just came down to who they knew, um, who they could call and whether or not they were lucky enough to have someone in their cell phone who knew someone inside the airport who could help them get inside. How many did we get out and how many did we leave behind? Well, the estimates are that we got out uh, approximately 100,000 personnel in total, and probably about 70 or 80,000 of those uh, were, were Afghan nationals. And I know that there are still about 300,000 who uh, are trying to get to the United States. Um, the problem, though, too, is that there was really no vetting process in those days. So you know, many, you know, many people got out just because it was you know, survival of the fittest. They were able to claw their way into the airport. Um, the challenge is that many very deserving Afghans whose lives are very much under the threat of the Taliban couldn't get out, maybe because they couldn't necessarily uh, claw their way into the airport. They weren't able to call upon the right person or, frankly, just because they, they weren't in Kabul. You know, if you weren't in Kabul, there were very few other points of debarkation. So if you were in you know, Harad or Kandahar or anywhere else in the country, you know, there were Taliban checkpoints everywhere between those cities and Kabul. So you were you were stranded. So looking back on what happened a, a year ago, do you think it was avoidable or was it inevitable? I mean, there is sort of a talking point out there like, that, uh, you know, it was going to be chaotic no matter what we did. I mean, what what happened was uh, was was unavoidable. What do you think? I think I've heard that talking point, and I think that that, yeah. that talking point is a you know is a pretty lazy talking point to be candid. You know, there were, for instance, people like uh, Congressman Jason Crow, Congressman Seth Moulton, and Peter Meyer, and uh, actually there are a whole number of members of Congress who, back in May, uh, there's more than two dozen and bipartisan sent a letter to the administration saying there needs to be some type of a contingency plan for an evacuation from Kabul. Um, and one of the plans they put in place was uh, 
to begin ferrying people to Guam, for instance, or to be ready to ferry people to Guam, which is what we did at the end of the Vietnam War and actually with the Kurds in Iraq. Um, so that administration, that letter was sent to the White House. Um, there was a good deal written about it in the press. I actually wrote about it in the press as well. Um, and the White House didn't respond. So I think, you know, had there been a contingency plan, which there clearly was not, I do not think you would have necessarily seen the bedlam that we we witnessed at the airport. Um, you know, and then there's a broader conversation that you, we can have over, you know, the last 20 years of war and the inevitability of a uncategorical U.S. defeat in Afghanistan. But that's a different conversation. So you have described the American exodus from Afghanistan as a collapse of American morals. Talk to me about that. Well, I think, you know, over over 20 years of war through our actions and, you know, frankly, our, our words as well. You know, the United States had made 20 years of, of promises to the Afghan people. And, you know, that doesn't absolve the Afghan government and the Afghan people, of course, of responsibility, but sort of the the uncategorical withdrawal of U.S. troops, you know, scenes of us, for instance, you know, abandoning Bagram Airfield in the middle of the night, and then the images of, you know, the chaos at the airport, the just complete stalling of the SIV program to, you know, to in the weeks before Kabul Falls, hardly, hardly any SIVs are getting processed. You know, all of this, Again, it, it speaks to a collapse of American morals. You know, this is not our our finest hour. We are not living up to to our values, and I think that it impinges upon our ability to be a credible ally going forward. So, where do you place the responsibility? And it was the Trump uh, administration that essentially said, "Hey, we are out. We're going to you know cut this deal with it with the Taliban and you know setting various dates." But the Biden administration inherited that. They doubled down on it, and then they set a deadline of August 31st, which you've talked about, this this artificial but very rigid deadline. So when you're sorting this out, who do you hold responsible for this collapse of our effort in Afghanistan? There's plenty of blame to go around for what happened in Afghanistan. So I don't know that, you know, I don't think you can, I don't think you can put all the blame squarely on one person. It's on everybody's head. Listen, I mean, we can tick through the administrations and, and, I think you can blame the Bush administration right off the mm-hmm. bat for the invasion of Iraq, for taking their eye off the ball in Afghanistan, for allowing the mission to lurk into a broader nation-building effort that that probably wasn't necessarily realistic. You can blame the Obama administration for doubling down on the war in Afghanistan. And in 2009, President Obama gives a speech where he announces a surge in Afghanistan and then literally in the very same speech announces a withdrawal date, thus undercutting his surge. You could blame the Trump Trump administration for initiating a very flawed negotiation process in Doha in which he cuts out the Afghan government from negotiations with the Taliban, which which is really, I would say, the, the beginning of the death knell of the Afghan government, because it's seen as them having no credibility and a vote of no confidence in them. And you can blame the Biden administration for doubling down on Trump's policies. Biden did not have to continue Trump's policies. I mean, all throughout his administration, he did not continue Trump's policies. So the idea that he had no choice but to continue Trump's policies, I think, is, is a false argument. So he continues with those policies and then hinges the entire withdrawal in Afghanistan based on this idea that there will be, you know, what Nixon called in Vietnam, a decent interval, meaning the time between the U.S. withdrawals mm-hmm. and the time between 
the collapse of the government. So in Vietnam, there was a decent interval. U.S. troops fall out in 1972. Saigon falls in 1975. The problem that we saw in Afghanistan was there was no decent interval. And the Biden administration had hedged its entire strategy on the idea that we would leave on a date certain, first September 11th, 2021, then August 31st. And there would be some time would elapse, whether it was as little time as three to six months would elapse before Afghanistan would collapse. And we as Americans could say, well, it didn't happen our, on our watch. So that's the decent interval. So, I mean, that's just going through the administrations. There, you know, there, there is plenty of blame to go in around Afghanistan. And I think it would be a, a shame if this conversation sort of devolved into the, the partisan finger pointing right. that characterizes so much of American life. See, what's interesting about this, though, is that it is not really a partisan issue. As you point out, there's something sort of fundamental about America's, you know, the way that America addressed this war, a 20 year war that most Americans just stop thinking about at a certain point. So let's talk about the veterans and how, you know, people who had lost loved ones, you know, lost, you know, comrades in, in Afghanistan what what is it like for the veterans to look back on this 20-year failed war that America essentially lost interest in and then abandoned it gets really down to the the fundamentals of how this war was waged you know what i would call the construct of the war you know every war that the united states has fought since the revolution has had to be fought and sustained with a construct and what i mean by that construct is you fight a war really with two broad variables. You fight it with blood and you fight it with treasure. Blood is who's going to fight it. Treasure is how you're going to pay for it. So if we look back, for instance, like the American Civil War, the first ever draft in the United States is to, uh, is to man the American Civil War. The first ever income tax the U.S. has is to fund the U.S. Civil War. You know, the Second World War, for instance, that's characterized with a construct that is a national mobilization as well as war bond drives. In the Vietnam War, we remember as a very unpopular draft that leads to an anti-war movement that results in the ending of that war. After 9-11, the United States goes to war again, and we put in place a construct to sustain these wars. And the construct this time was the blood will come from our all-volunteer military, and the treasure, how we'll fund the war, will come through our deficit. There's never been a war tax. This war has all been paid for through our deficit. If you actually look at the with the ballooning U.S. deficit right now, about a quarter to a third of that is spending on the wars on terror. You know, and the result of that that construct is that the American people are anesthetized to the cost of the war. They they don't right. feel them. You know, unlike other wars, which were generationally defining events. You know, Vietnam defined my parents' generation, for instance. World War II, the greatest generation. The second, the first World War. Right, we have the lost generation. This was not a generationally defining event. You know, when I, when I look back at, at, and I think about these wars and how they featured on my own generation, I've never felt like, for instance, I was part of a lost generation. I actually think it would be better to be part of a lost generation. I have always felt as though I am sort of the lost part of a generation and that the war generationally for me and for veterans who fought it was just sort of a, a sub experience in what happened to our generation and was fought by a a subsection of our society. And I think it's, it's very dangerous, particularly in a democracy, when the burden of a war is not shouldered by the society writ large. It leads us into morally very gray and, and murky territory. So I think coming out of these wars, we as citizens should be very skeptical the next time that any of our political leaders try to send, send us and send our nation off to war but while telling us at the same time, don't worry, most of you aren't going to feel it. It takes us into, I think, into very difficult places. 
I think this is a crucial point. You're describing the subsection of of this generation, and, and you were part of this. Who are they? Who are the veterans of Afghanistan? Where do they come from? Just give me a sense of, we have this all-volunteer army, which, as you point out, has enabled us to take our attention away, to think that they are other people's kids, other people. And you, you, you can go through vast swaths of America and talk to people, particularly among, you know, you know the, the political elites who literally don't know a single person who has served in the military, who, who can't understand why any family would send a son or daughter to fight in Afghanistan or, or Iraq. So who are they? Where do they come from? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll offer, I think, a couple of interesting points is if you look at military recruitment and you look at it by zip code, the zip codes that are in the top decile of this country in terms of income and the zip codes that are in the lowest decile in this country in terms of income are the two zip codes that are the least represented in the U.S. military. Hmm. The top decile, obviously, because those are elites who do not send their children into the U.S. military and the bottom decile, because those are the individuals in this country who can't qualify for the U.S. military, who are lowest income based off of access to education and other you know, contributing factors. So I think that should concern us that we have that bifurcation of society and that's only increasing. I think another trend that is concerning is that you know, military service increasingly is becoming intergenerational. So it's something that's passed down. And this sort of speaks to that trend that we see across American society, the atomization of America. So our US military becomes you know, one of all of these subcultures we're seeing sprout out around America. So we have lots of subcultures in America as opposed to sort of what we, you know, we used to have a little bit more of a monoculture. And now the military is one of those subcultures and that should concern us. And I think lastly, it should concern us because, you know, if you look back historically, any time an empire begins to outsource its military to a, a sub part of the empire, I mean, you look back to the Romans, you know, one of the key contributing factors of the fall of the Roman Empire was when the legions stopped coming from Rome. They started coming from the provinces. Well, we are outsourcing our military service, you know, not to the provinces per se, but to an increasingly bespoke subculture in America. And that is straying from the tradition we used to have of a citizen soldiery. And the tradition we used to have when America went to war, everyone went to war. And that made it very difficult to keep wars going. Like, we just fought a 20-year war. You could never fight World War II or the Civil War for 20 years. And that's good. You shouldn't be able to fight a war for 20 years. I can't think of any war that's a quote-unquote good war that you fight for 20 years. By the time you're fighting it for 20 years, it stinks. I find this absolutely fascinating and really, really important. You say that we should be concerned about this. Put this in some perspective, because I'm thinking that most Americans have not thought about this. I, I think that they tell themselves the comforting fiction that, well, you know, it's an all-volunteer force. They are citizens, soldiers. It's same old, same old. You're suggesting that, that in fact, it's a fundamental and it sounds alarming you know, on some levels where sure. it goes. So give me your sense of that. Well, I think that one of the results of the civil-military divide that exists in the United States, which is based off of the all-volunteer force and what we just spoke about, is that everyday Americans who don't touch the military, they're militarily illiterate. Yeah. They don't necessarily intuitively understand. They don't understand the difference between, you know, when a retired four-star general goes on TV and airs a political belief and when an active-duty general does. And there's a very stark difference between the two. And I think, you know, when we look at conditions in the United States right now, you know, we have a very, very large 
all volunteer military, which is something that actually, you know, the founding fathers warned against and were always very skeptical of, and I think for good reason. And we also have an incredibly dysfunctional internal politics. And if you look back from history, from, from Caesar's Rome to Napoleon's France, when you combine those two variables, the large standing military and the dysfunctional internal politics, uh, democracy does not last long in countries that combine those two variables because they are, they are combustible. And so we're sitting here in the United States. It's 2022. If I would argue, if you look back at the last two elections, presidential elections, they've been contested elections with the degree of contestation only accelerating and becoming more and more intense. I don't think it is beyond plausible to believe that the next presidential election will be contested in some way. And when you go from contested election to contested election, you know, at each juncture, there's a game of brinksmanship that's going on with whether or not the military will have to come in and restore some type of order. You know, there was talk about them having to restore order after the January 6th riots. And there was National Guard. I'm actually from Washington, D.C. There was National Guard all over Washington, D.C. in the wake of those riots. There was talk of them, of President Trump. You know, remember there was the Tom Cotton, New York Times op-ed and President Trump talking about evoking the Insurrection Act in the summer of 2020. I mean, that wasn't a presidential election, but it shows how there is this temptation for our political class to start politicizing the U.S. military. And that is very, very dangerous because, you know, although the military is seen as a as a non-political entity in the United States, that does not mean that those in uniform do not have their political biases like every other American. The only difference is there's a culture of omerta in the U.S. military. We don't speak it, but that culture can can break. And it seems as though uh, our political leaders from the right and the left at, at every juncture are, are eager to politicize the U.S. military. And it's something we should be very aware of and alarmed about as citizens. My just my concern is that because so many citizens, again, don't don't speak the language, aren't necessarily literate with what's going on inside the military, they won't be able to see it until it's too late. The line held. Uh, it, it held and I, I think reassured some people because you had people like General Mark Milley who made it, you know, issued public statements. There is no way the military is going to be involved. We had a letter signed by, I think, 11 former secretaries of defense saying, you know, the military is not going to play any role, so, you know, whatsoever. So at least in the existing top ranks of the military, they understand, they seem to understand the danger, but if I understand you correctly, you're saying don't become complacent about that or assume that 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 necessarily reflects what might happen in the culture of the military going forward. Absolutely. I mean, listen, and, and um, we, again, sort of our popular culture tends to fixate on these, you know, four star generals, you know, the most I mean, yes. the most senior sliver of the U.S. military. But the military is a massive organization with officers up and down the chain of command, you know, who are not. Mark Milley and might not do what Mark Milley says in, 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 in the heat of the moment. And I, I write in the book a little bit about Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller. And Stu Scheller and I were actually contemporaries in the Marines. Uh, we served in the same infantry battalion and did a deployment together. And I don't know him that well, but I, I knew him when I saw him when he came out right after the bombing at Abbey Gate. And he was a battalion commander in the Marine Corps. I remember this. That means you know, his career was going well. They don't select everyone to command battalions in the Marine Corps. You know, in his anger about the debacle that was going on in Afghanistan. And he served, he's a veteran of the Afghan war, recorded uh, an excoriating Facebook post um, that basically, I mean, it, he knew it would end his career and it did end his career in which he 
He called for accountability up and down the chain of command from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs to the commandant of the Marine Corps or to the secretary of defense. And, you know, I think the sentiments he was expressing were, you know, although I believe they were inappropriately expressed, you shouldn't express those when you're wearing the uniform, I think were shared by many military members. And I think, again, we should, you know, if we look back at history, when these events happen, I'm not, and I'm not necessarily saying like, this is going to happen in the United States. I just think we should be aware of that and we're not. It's not the generals who do it, right? There's a reason that it's Colonel Gaddafi. There's a reason that it's, you know, the, the young Turks, it's Colonel Ataturk. It's often sort of the, the, the younger up-and-comers who, out of disgust, will engage in some dramatic act. And so, again, you know, I'm, not, I'm really not trying to be alarmist, right. but we have, you know, such high levels of dysfunction domestically. And every time we kind of set up these scenarios where we're asking our military to play a role in domestic politics, we're really tempting the fates. The, you know, the analogy I use at least for sort of elections is having these contested elections. It's, it it reminds me of a drunk driver, you know, like a a drunk driver will, will go to the bar, right. And they will get completely hammered drunk and they'll drive home. And probably the first time they do that, like they make it home and they do it and they make it home the second time, the third time. And then it's like on the fourth or fifth time they get hammered drunk and try to drive home. That's when they wrap their car around the telephone pole. And when I look at our contested elections, it's like we're, we're doing the equivalent as a nation of going to the bar, getting just hammered drunk, and we try to drive home. And like we've done it twice now, and we have sort of managed to make it home. But one of these days, if we keep doing this, like we are going to wrap our proverbial car around a telephone pole. Yes, and it worries me. Like we have to stop engaging in these behaviors. So going back to the, the subculture of, of the military and, and particularly your fellow Afghan veterans, is there a sense of anger and betrayal among them? And, and does that contribute to a, the kind of alienation and radicalization that we're seeing? And I've, I've asked you a lot of things that you can unpack however you, you like. Well, I in no way, shape or form purport to speak for all yeah. veterans right. of the war uh, of Afghanistan. And I think you will find as many varied opinions amongst veterans as any other group. I have certainly encountered amongst certain veterans uh, that sense of, yes, that sense of betrayal, that sense of disgust with how it all ended. You know, I also have encountered veterans, you know, who have long ago threw their hands up to the air and said, this thing is unwinnable and at least it's over, even if it was a debacle Mm -hmm. and how it ended. So I think there's a variety of views. I think that, again, just to go back to the themes we were talking about before, a failed war particularly one that ends as badly as the war in Afghanistan did. If we look in history, there's a political energy around that that is a real thing that we should Mm -hmm. be aware of. When the Vietnam War ended, you know, there was sort of a a vortex that existed in the U.S. military afterwards. And if you talk to people who are serving the U.S. military in the early to mid-70s, they will tell you those were very tough years in the military. I think we should be prepared to sort of psychically for some tough years now in the military and, you know, in a little bit in American culture as it relates to the military in these, in these years that follow. So I'm, I'm certainly cognizant of that. You've also touched on something else. Hopefully you, you can help me out on this one because I've assumed that the military has a very effective and competent way of vetting, picking who is going to be put in positions of responsibility. It is not easy to become a general. Not everybody becomes a general. And yet, As you look across the political military landscape, and I'll put this rather bluntly, is we have some people who have risen to high ranks, lieutenant generals like General Flynn, and they're nuts. 
I, I guess I'm a little concerned about where the, the number of people who had been trusted by the military with command and yet are now among the ranks of the conspiracy theorists and among the most uh, reckless extremists out there. I mean, that's the scariest thing for, for me. I mean, how do you get to be someone like Michael Flynn promoted to his rank and be, I'm sorry, batshit crazy? Well, I think, you know, it is Michael Flynn notwithstanding. I think we have a country that is pretty schizophrenic right now politically. And I mean, I'll be candid, Charlie. I, I kind of think that the, the two parties are nuts right now. Yeah. I'm not much of a partisan and I kind of don't like either of them. So um, so I think I don't like either of the parties. And I think they go in very nutso directions and do things that are not in the best interest of the broader body politic on a frequent basis. But I think there is a tendency that alarms me amongst uh, retired military generals to use their cachet to get involved in politics. And so by definition, if you're going to get involved in politics in America today, you're going to have to be a little nuts. And then, you know, and then we can talk about the degree of, of nuts. And I think that, you know, we've seen this trend. I mean, in 2016, the year that Michael Flynn came onto the scene in the Trump administration, you know, was he was really the, the, the first year that you had seen Two retire, very recently retired four-star generals, well, I guess Michael Flynn was a three-star, yeah. but give speeches at the Democratic and Republican national conventions. And that was something that in the before was sort of, you know, verboten. And so, you know, the U.S. military remains one of the most trusted institutions in the United States. And senior retired military officers have been in recent years leveraging that trust to get into politics and play in the political realm. And our politicians are happy to, to capitalize on their cachet. But what's dangerous is the more they get involved in politics, the more that trust erodes. On yesterday's podcast, we talked about the blurring of the line between entertainment and politics. You are describing a blurring of the line between the military and politics, that there used to be a pretty clear line that you do not trade in your 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 celebrity of course i mean look dwight eisenhower became president of the united states i mean so we have elected generals in the past to high office in the country but but there does seem to be kind of a blurring of those lines now doesn't there well it does and of course you know you have eisenhower i mean listen our first president was a general general washington yeah. so um you know we have we we have always sort of had that uneasy general grant General Grant. I mean, yeah, there's there's been many. So we've always had that sort of uneasy relationship of, you know, what is the line between our military and politics? But I think there's a little bit of a perfect storm here going on. Right. And so much as Eisenhower becomes president after the Second World War, Grant becomes president after the Civil War. Those are two wars that were national mobilizations and fought by citizen soldiers. So they were more reflective of the citizenry. I think what's difficult now is we have generals whose cachet doesn't come from really a national movement, a national type of service. And it sort of comes from this abstract, well, they're generals and we're going to defer to them. And yeah, and again, that I just find that, um, I find that somewhat alarming, particularly as the military seems to be increasingly used as a political football, you know, in a context which we already spoke about in which we have decreased military literacy in this country. And, and the parties are more extreme. So you get more craziness. I mean, I think we've seen this with our politicians, right? Yeah. You know, why often you see people who see it, they're very sane in their public lives, or maybe they're not politicians and they run for office and they seem like lunatics when you see them on the stump. Um, I mean, like, like look at someone like JD, look at someone like JD Vance, for instance. You know, 
who was sort of this centrist Republican, you know, right? He was normal. And now he's way out there. Um, But that's sort of what he has to transform himself into if he wants to become a senator from Ohio. And that's our political system right now. That is our political system, that that all of the incentives in our political system bend the arc toward crazy. I'm going to just go back to the, the fall of Afghanistan and the aftermath, because, of course, one of the more fundamental questions is, is America safer? Has America's role in the world been damaged? And and I guess one of the things that, that I keep wondering about is, and what do you think, about, you know, America's abandonment of, of Afghanistan, whether that played, and of course, we can't possibly know for sure, but whether that played into Vladimir Putin's uh, decision to go into Ukraine, the sense that we were weak, that we would not stand behind our allies. Do you think there's any connection? Was there any, was there any fallout in that, in that direction? Oh, oh yeah. I think you absolutely can drop a direct plumb line between our decision to get out of Afghanistan and the way we got out with Putin's invasion of, of Ukraine. I mean, listen, he's sitting there in August of last summer and he's considering whether or not to launch this invasion. One of the most essential variables in that decision is, is what will the NATO response be? And he turns on the television and he sees these images coming out of, of Kabul. And he sees, again, just the chaos at the airport, our inability to do this in an effective way, the way NATO was really being dictated terms by the Taliban and had no stomach to stay one day past August 31st. I mean, if he's trying to determine what NATO's response is going to be, you know, that clearly tilts him towards, I think the NATO response will be muted and that NATO cannot get its act together and that the U.S. can't get its act together to, to act with real resolve. I think what's remarkable is that within six months of, you know, what I would call probably NATO's, I mean, darkest hour, like we should remember, you know, in Afghanistan is the first time in NATO's history that the alliance evokes right. Article 5, the condition, you know, when an attack against one is an attack against all. And that Article 5 ends in this debacle. But it's amazing that six months after that darkest hour, we have what I would say is one of NATO's, you know, brightest moments, which is the way the alliance holds together and outperforms um, in Ukraine. And, you know, and Charlie, like, again, I think as Americans, we have this tendency to sort of want to sort of stovepipe Afghanistan and say, it's, well, it's just this one country and we're going to turn the page. And and the administration, in fact, said this because we need to focus on great power politics now. Well, Afghanistan is great power politics. So, you know, if you could draw a plumb line between Afghanistan and Ukraine and had Putin's invasion of Ukraine gone gone better and he'd swept through Ukraine, we would probably be drawing a plumb line right now between Ukraine and a possible mm-hmm. Chinese incursion or invasion of Taiwan. And if China were to invade Taiwan and there were, and there were to be an American response, one of the great challenges we face as Americans in our response is we have to do it across the Pacific Ocean, which is logistically very, very difficult for us. Then wouldn't it be nice if we were trying to respond to a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, if we had, let's say, strategic air bases in a country like Afghanistan, which shares a border with China. So again, I mean, the, these issues are all connected and it's important for us and for the conversation around them to not be stovepiped and to show that connectivity. So you are also the co-author with Admiral Stavridis, NATO's former Supreme Allied Commander of, of a novel, 2034, which I have not yet read. Can you give me a quick Sparks note pitch for what, what do we have to look forward to in 2034, the year and the book? 
Unfortunately, not much. But the book imagines a war fought between China and the United States, primarily at sea in the aforementioned year 2034. And the book was written in the spirit of, if you believe, and I do, that as Henry Kissinger says, that if we're not in a Cold War with China right now, we are at least in the foothills of a Cold War with China. Mm -hmm. Well, if you look back at the Cold War uh, against the Soviets, one of the things that we had in the United States was a very rich literature that imagined what a third world war fought against the Soviets would look like. And the Soviets had the same literature. And that's books, films like Red Dawn and Dr. Strangelove Mm -hmm. and books like, you know, the Bedford Incident. And if you look at this Cold War with China, there's there's been really no films, no very little books and, and imagining done. So we wanted to sort of imagine that war as a precautionary measure. You know, if you can imagine it, you can avoid it. And if you look at the Cold War against the Soviets, you know, we didn't agree on much with the Soviets. But the one thing, because we had done this rich imaginative work that we did agree upon, was that no one would win the Third World War and none of us wanted to fight it. Uh, and eventually it was avoided. So the spirit the book was written in. I have got to read this. Elliot Ackerman's latest book is The Fifth Act, America's End in Afghanistan. Elliot Ackerman, thank you so much for joining me on the Bulwark Podcast today. Thanks so much for having me on, Charlie. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.